Good morning. Uh, it's Palm Sunday and the beginning officially of Holy Week. Though we as a people started a series several weeks ago called A People Becoming, and we've already looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in his final week on the planet. So what I'd like to do is overlook that today, and I'd like to look at a passage that reveals the trial of Jesus and how important that actually was to the richness of the cross and all that Jesus suffered for us. Um, I, have, I have a tendency to believe that we overlook this too often, and I want to point out just how unique this trial was, and I want to look at how unique Jesus' demeanor was as he entered the trial. I'm calling today uh, Jesus' Composure in what is be- uh, the first part of a two-parted sermon that will end next week on Easter and Celebration. As a, as a warm-blooded American who grew up watching football and loving it as a child, both on Saturdays and Sundays, American football has this amazing ability uh, to celebrate pageantry and um, to create heroes. We all love an underdog story, and we love when that underdog is in a dogfight with a superior power, one of those historic programs like in Alabama. And what we do is we, we watch that team that should never be in this game in the last final seconds of said game be handed the ball, and they're going on offense, and they put the ball in the hands of the quarterback. Now, the quarterback is known in football, in all of sports, to be the, the most important position to, to, any, to any sport, and here's why. Because as you watch that quarterback lead his team against a skilled and more opposing defense, lead them uh, yard by yard down the field, ultimately, in the last seconds, to throw a game-winning touchdown and arise victorious over the team they should have never beaten is the composure of the quarterback. That quarterback has an ability to walk into the game and not have many highs or lows, but just execute each play, getting his team that much closer to victory. And it's only at the end of that final pass with with seconds ticking off the clock that he'll celebrate with his team finally. Jesus had this kind of composure as he faced a trial that I'll expose today was illegitimate and unique in its way. See, there was an irony to Jesus' case uh, because it was a capital trial. And for centuries, the Jews had been considered incredibly admirable in their judicial process. The, The requirements for a capital case are found in Deuteronomy 19. And the entire theme of the book of Deuteronomy is that if my people will simply respond in love and obedience, then they'll experience nothing but blessing from me, their father. They exercised the highest level of jurisprudence And they were known for that, except in the very case of Jesus. In fact, I spoke with a defense attorney this week who likened the legitimacy of Jesus' trial from a practice standpoint to the fairness of a lynching trial that was made famous here in Tennessee at the height of slavery. I want to read from you Mark 14, the the verses that lead to this trial and where it all begins. Here it says in verse 53, he they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood and gave him false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, 
Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Almighty and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And some began to spit at him, blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. The entire picture of Jesus' trial is illegitimate and filled with hatred and hypocrisy from them. The religious leaders of this mob are hate Jesus and the entire practice is hypocritical. In Mark's gospel, we're seeing only the latter half of the trial. To see the full effect of the trial and the magnitude thereof, you'd have to look at the protocol that I already mentioned in Deuteronomy 19 and then find those pieces in the synoptic gospels and put it together like in John 8, Luke 22 and Luke 23. There are always two parts to any trial uh, of this magnitude, and basically they were split into an indictment and formal defense and then a deliberation and a sentencing. We witness only the sentencing in the Gospel of Mark, and the stretch is made for an indictment altogether. Why? Well, there's an indignation by the religious leaders, there's an illegitimacy of the entire picture and only injustice for Jesus. I'm going to talk about each of those in a moment. But I need to paint a clear picture here. The Old Testament stipulations made the judicial process for Judaism uh, incredibly safeguarded against anyone who was accused in said capital trial. The last thing they wanted was death. They only wanted to ensure justice. So every trial like this had to take place in daylight, publicly in front of the people at the temple, there had to be adequate opportunity for defense, and there was always a rejection of any accusation that wasn't affirmed by two testimonies. It shouldn't have been held, it should have been held in public, Jesus' trial before the people, during daylight hours at the temple. However, it was held at night, in private, at the high priest Caiaphas' house. And this was only after a prior arraignment at Annas' house, which we read about in John 18. The rest of the great Sanhedrin was privately assembling at Caiaphas' house while Annas spoke to Jesus. Now, this is important because Annas is the former high priest and he's the father-in-law to Caiaphas. You must understand that the entire picture of the religious system and rise to Sanhedrin or the eventual choosing of a high priest has become uh, so nepotistic that it's as if like the entire religious process uh, has taken on a mafia-like mentality and Annas ultimately stays in charge. Annas has a personal vendetta against Jesus here. The marketplace, the Gentile courts, where Jesus overturned the, the, the tables of the money changers we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, was often known as the Bazaar of Annas or the Marketplace of Annas meaning that he oversaw the entire thing and he was the main beneficiary of all the proceeds that came out of that time. When Jesus did that, just days before this moment, he was a marked target for Annas. The Sanhedrin was never an indicting body, only a judging and sentencing one, except in the case of Jesus. So you must imagine a, a courtyard separating 
one large building, but on either end having the private residences of Caiaphas and Annas. While Annas and Jesus are talking, Caiaphas is welcoming the rest of the Sanhedrin to stand to, stand, to gather and sentence and indict Jesus. But what they're going to find is they were, there was no indictment that wasn't founded by two or more witnesses in order to establish credibility. But in this trial, all they find is false testimonies. Perjury was incredibly serious. In fact, in their day, uh, if someone was to lie against another, give false testimony, it says that if they were found to be lying in a court of law like this, they would suffer the fate of the one that they lied against instead of them. In a capital case that testified, uh, in, he who testified against someone bringing damning testimony it says that that person who testifies has to be so secure, so uh, legit in their testimony that they are the ones to cast the first stones because capital punishment and death penalty in the Jewish system was stoning. They had to cast the first stones. However, verse 56 says, Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave him false testimony against him, and we heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even this testimony did not agree. The case is filled with illegitimate accusations and practice altogether. Up until this point, they should have been having this trial in the daytime. It's happening at night. It should have been in public in front of the people. It didn't. It happened just with the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas' house alone. They had no opportunity for an indictment. No two, false, no two witnesses could testify to bring accusation. So there was no formal indictment and there was no opportunity to defend. But in a case like this, in Jewish history, this stands alone because this had never happened before. In fact, in matters of a capital case such as this, law required a full 24 hours to pass from verdict to death penalty for the Sanhedrin just to sit on the weight of their just ruling. If they found someone guilty, they had to go into a period of 24 hours of fasting to ensure the weight of the personal conviction that they had had in ruling was not overturned. In that time, defense and testimonies were continued to be allowed that entire 24-hour period to bring forth a truth to overturn said death penalty, implementing justice and accountability from a wrong sentencing, possibly. See, death was always the final option, and there was always option for the accused to be in fine reprieve, except in the case of Jesus. Jesus' Jesus' only option, like a lynching trial, was death. That's what they wanted for him. Because of this fast, no trial uh, law required was specifically allowed to be tried the day before a lawful Jewish feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was the very next day. As they're trying him on Thursday night at Caiaphas' house, Friday would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was actually at 3 o'clock when Jesus will breathe his last on the cross that all of Israel was was sacrificing their Passover lamb so they could celebrate said feast. Literally nothing about this trial was legitimate or lawful. It wasn't driven by truth or the pursuit of justice, but rather it was driven by fear and the pursuit of a just man's death. Why? Because of the indignation of the religious leaders here. In fact, the cross, the death penalty that they gave him, was inflicted only hours after this bogus trial, not the 24-hour period that Deuteronomy required. 
The chief priests wanted no interference and no opportunity for any appeal for Jesus. They moved nearly immediately to a death penalty, disregarding their own legal requirements, literally bringing forth no facts. In that 24-hour period after sentencing, having no fast, no reconsideration, just death for Jesus. The denial of those closest to him would have been shocked by this. And that's why it mentions Peter was close in the courtyard. I want to breeze by this for a moment. It says Peter followed so closely, it says that he waited in the courtyard outside. It means he's literally in the courtyard where the Rome, those, those Jewish guards are warming themselves, waiting for a sentencing from the Sanhedrin of Jesus. This would have been that courtyard between Annas and Caiaphas' house. So when he betrays him, Peter is incredibly proximate to Jesus. But right there, as he does exactly as Jesus prophesied he would, he flees for his own life in deep and depressing shame. At the the start of chapter 15 in Mark, we see the second part of Jesus' trial. And it is different because the second part of Jesus' trial, instead of it solely being tried by the Jews, they send it to the Romans. So... I want, to, I want to say the gospel is clear that Jesus died for all humanity. And in his trial, Jesus is tried not only by a Jewish body, but he's tried by the Roman and Gentile as well. It says this, verse 1, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom of the feast to release a prisoner from whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison for the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up, asked Pilate to do Uh, The the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, and that was release a prisoner. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. There's only injustice for Jesus here. It's so unjust that they release a known murderer, Barabbas. But through it all, what we hear from Jesus is something that is incredibly important. We see two things from Jesus. We hear honesty and honor from him. We witness honesty and honor from Jesus and that composure the entire time. He goes along without a fight. He doesn't defend himself against the false testimonies or the illegitimacy of the entire picture or the claims brought against him. He doesn't weep or show emotion indicative of betrayal. He's composed through it all. And without trying to be too irreverent here, he's as resolved as a quarterback running out of time, driving his team down the field against a ferocious, opposing, maybe more skilled defense to ultimately win the game on a last-second play 
of heroism. Jesus answers honestly, which leads to only more mockery and torture for him, both by his own people Israel and the Romans to represent the entire world was against Jesus, and Jesus was coming to redeem the sin of the entire world. There's this stark contrast between the mob and Jesus. The mob is over-emotional in fear. The Pharisees try to gain consensus of hatred due to their own uh, fear of losing influence with the people. As we, we see Pilate pick out, it's envy. So they try to kill him. They create a case, manipulate the people, and try to bring cause against him. And the only thing they'll accept is his death. The Romans literally find no fault with him. In almost a dumbfounded shock, a stupor of injustice, they do all they can to stop this massacre. Pilate, it says in Matthew 27, literally washes his hands of the blood of Jesus and says, I find no fault with him. And they cry out, let his blood be on us. Under the shadow of releasing a murderer that leads Jesus off to beating, flogging, and eventually the cross. Jesus' only response to his people or to Pilate, were this. I am the Messiah. I am the King of the Jews. I am honest. And then he takes it. He takes all of it for you and for me. In a broken world that craves a fair trial, that fair trial didn't exist for Jesus, only injustice. Yet Jesus approached the entire picture with this quarterback-like composure, with laser-like focus on the cross. It was there that, and there alone, that he would complete his mission and ultimately redeem all of mankind. He was there to redeem the very souls of those in that moment that had turned their backs on him. And in this moment, these religious leaders and their hatred have only exposed the very sin and self-worship they're being redeemed from by Jesus and consequently why. It was a deep and severe need that the Father sought to meet by sending Jesus so that he could bring us back to himself. You see, today our culture is being tested. Historically, we've been a culture that looks out only for ourselves, our own agendas. We have a tendency to shift blame. This is the picture of what a culture looks like in a broken world. It's really no different today than it was then. In our current moment, we are facing a global crisis, yet we still have people who are perpetuating the problem because of their own selfish desires and not adhering to simple guidelines that would help keep everyone safe because Philippians 2 requires that we think of others first. They they decide to do what they want when they want, and this COVID-19 problem continues to persist. Although the vast majority, I believe globally, are trying to honor the orders that have been put before us in an effort to slow this pandemic. Through all of it, Jesus expects his church to look differently. To be just as composed as he was, as everything around us seemingly is coming apart. Right now, I want to remind us that we've been empowered with the very same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus as he went through an unfair and illegitimate trial. As we face things that don't make sense to us us and are completely out of our control, we have the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus with the grip of heaven empowering us and giving us an ability to have that same quarterback-like composure as we go through it, offering hope to a world that right now needs some. 
giving answers where maybe answers have not existed. Because here, here's the truth. We're not alone. The Holy Spirit did not leave Jesus alone in His darkest moment, His darkest time on the planet, and He has not left us either. Jesus, in fact, identifies with us and has not left us alone and will strengthen us through every trial that you and I may face. We are His plan to offer hope to the world. And in order for us to do so, we have to trust Jesus, have confidence in Him, trust the very Spirit that resides within every believer that has trusted on Jesus' name to get us through, and think about others first. Today, you may be sitting here, and your hope may be shaken a little bit, uncertain about what stands before us. But I want to remind us, in this trial that we see Jesus get every aspect of justice ripped from him, he doesn't defend himself. And even though all these events are completely out of his control, if he does not go through with it and ultimately submit to it, he gives himself up ultimately. They didn't take his life. He gives his life so that you and I might have hope. If he doesn't go through with it, we don't get to celebrate Easter. There will be no empty tomb. And that's where our life truly begins. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you. And then I'm going to give you three ways that I believe that we are to respond right now. It says in Deuteronomy, the entire theme was the response of the people was love and obedience. And if they respond in love and obedience to God, then blessing follows. So, Father, we love you and we thank you and we thank you for Jesus and his example. We thank you for his sacrifice that we might live. We thank you for his willingness to not only be, be composed, but to take it all so that we wouldn't have to. God, he died so that we could live. And for those of us who need to hear that or those of us who have friends who need to hear that, I pray that would be the driving thing that gives us stability and bedrock right now. I pray that we would trust on Jesus like a team trusts on their quarterback to lead them down the field against an opposing trial, ultimately only to arise victorious. God, may we approach you from victory and not for victory because, God, you've already won and the cross and the grave and, God, sin has already been defeated. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I have a few questions for us to ponder as the band will come back and we seek to respond. Number one is this. How composed are you in times of crisis? Is it your strength or is it his? This morning, maybe you need to kneel right where you are and thank Jesus for his composure and his strength extended to you and to I right now through all of this. Even though we may not have the answers and things may seem uh, inconsistent for us and contrary. He is consistent and he is constant. Maybe right now you need to ask yourself, does Jesus look upon your response to this current crisis with pride? Would he be proud of his son or daughter and how they've turned to him? And his control of things, rather than turning inward and trying to offer an opinion, we just simply seek the truth and trust him. Number two, would you consider that you're others' beacon of hope? You are a beacon of hope to others, not a false one that no one else can respect, but one that gives a realistic look at the world and its current circumstances and finds stability and offers hope in Jesus. And lastly, this morning, who are you praying for? Who in your life needs hope? Just like we would be gathered here 
in worship together. We would have the crosses open. We'd ask you to pin that prayer request or that name to the cross. Here's what I want to do. Right now, you can respond by going to your computer or going to your phone, and you can email us, share that prayer request, who you're praying for, with us as a, as a leadership and as a body at prayeratthefellowship.cc. We want to join you in that prayer because here's the thing. We just looked at what he faced Thursday night, and we know what was coming on Friday. But all of that stands in the shadow of an empty tomb that we're going to celebrate as we gather next Sunday. We get to commemorate the fact that we have life because he took what we deserved and he was victorious over sin. He died so that we didn't have to. And so as we gather next week to celebrate Easter, I pray that you be praying for those people who need to know the truth of the gospel and how much he loved them. And you yourselves will trust it just a little bit more this morning. Let's respond.